The aim of the Folklore Podcast is to bring quality folklore discussion and world-class guests to its audience completely free of charge. As such, we do not carry adverts and do not accept sponsorship. You tell us you prefer it this way. In return, we rely on your support to continue making episodes of the podcast. Without it, we cannot keep going. If you enjoy the Folklore Podcast, please consider clicking the donate button at thefolklorepodcast.com or signing up for a small monthly contribution in return for exclusive content and rewards at www.patreon.com slash thefolklorepodcast. If you cannot help in this way, please share our episodes on social media and leave positive reviews for the podcast in your app of choice. It is greatly appreciated. Thank you. Enjoy the episode. Hello and welcome to the Folklore Podcast. I'm Mark Norman, folklore researcher and author. Today on the podcast, we are revisiting an area which we have looked at some details of in a couple of previous episodes, but we're going into more discussion over a much broader range. That subject is magical house protection. In Season 1, Episode 3, my guest Carrie Holbrook gave us an introduction to the concealment of shoes for this purpose. Later, in episode 41, we heard a presentation from museum manager Peter Hewitt on witch bottles, their uses and how they were made. That presentation was recorded at a conference called Hidden Charms, organised by today's guest, Brian Hoggard. Brian has been studying history, archaeology and folk beliefs since his teens. His undergraduate dissertation focused on folk beliefs and witchcraft, and having previously read Ralph Merrifield's Archaeology of Ritual and Magic, published in 1987, he noticed there was a huge amount of work which could be done to further explore the archaeology of witchcraft. At that point, back in 1999, his research really escalated into a major project, which has culminated in the publication of Magical House Protection, The Archaeology of Counter-Witchcraft, this year. There are still recordings from Hidden Charms to present in future podcasts, and as you'll hear, another conference coming up in 2020. But for now, here is my discussion with Brian on his long project of collecting and researching these various forms of magical protection. So, Brian, before we um, really crack on and look in detail at the subject of um, magical house protection, which is the title of, of your, it has to be said, beautifully presented new book, which I've, I've just finished and thoroughly enjoyed, can you, um, can you give everybody a little bit of background as to what is entailed in, in magical house protection and uh, the history of it as a kind of broad subject? 
okay? Um, essentially, it's uh, all connected with people's fear of um, supernatural dangers. So people obviously were worried that uh, magic, well, magic was real to most people in the past, I would say, um, as the Enlightenment came along to the elite who could afford uh, high-class education, um, they started to not feel it quite so much. Um, and there were always people who didn't believe in magic, of course. But it was, I'd say, in the past, principally pretty normal for people to believe in magic. And if you believe in magic, you believe that it can be used for good, but you also have the, the negative reflection of that as well, that it can be used for harm as well. And so um, I think in all eras, people um, believe that people can do harm through magic. And in fact, anybody who believes in magic, when they're feeling happy and nice, might wish someone well. And when they're feeling angry and annoyed, they might wish someone ill. And, um, and essentially, it's kind of a, an extension of that, really, into the belief that it can cause actual physical harm. Um, and that was partly born through sort of misunderstandings about ill fortune and illness, and people thinking there are supernatural causes for those things, which, of course, there may be still. Um, but, but, yeah, essentially, people, uh, when they were in their homes, they wanted to feel safe. So they found a variety of ways uh, to use magic for their own ends to help protect themselves. And some of this involves putting objects in the walls and in the roofs. Some of it involves doing rituals. That, that sort of thing isn't really detailed in my book, except for where it results in, a, in an object, such as a, a written charm. Um, and sometimes they would even do things that were just actions, you know, uh, as simple as crossing yourself or maybe doing a, a different kind of magical action, or, or even creating a potion that you might think would protect you or your family. No. So it's a question of creating a safe space, really, um, from all of the harms that you knew were out there in the environment. And do you focus uh, in in your research and your work on, on this concealment of objects within the home? Now, obviously, the way in which a house is magically protected is different in different cultures although of course we do see parallels between them um so w within the kind of the western sphere uh so within our own culture how far back are we looking for this practice to have developed uh well it's it's really as, as far back as um archaeological remains exist um but but in terms of my things that are like what I look at, you know, the sort of lineage of that definitely stretches back into the medieval period. Um, concealed shoes, for example, we have examples, uh, you know, from definitely from the 15th century and some even maybe from the century before that. Um, marks, obviously the marks that people used to scratch onto the surfaces of buildings, um, they clearly go back to the medieval period as well. Um, but things like um, horse skulls, etc. I mean, we have ritual horse burials going back thousands of years. You know, and in Roman Britain, we have you know babies being um, sacrificed and put into jars and cast into town ditches and things like that. So, so practices like this or related to this, but sometimes much more extreme, uh, have been going along for as, as far as the archaeological record goes, really. So. How did you get involved in, in looking at these objects as a, as a field of study? Tell us a little bit about how your work in this area has, has developed over, over time yourself. 
Research project then led on to um, starting to collect data on this, which has just developed and grown over time, hasn't it? Tell tell us a little bit about uh, about that and about your resulting website and database. Um, the website I started pretty much at the same time as when I started my part time PhD, which I never actually finished, by the way. Um, so so yeah, back in nineteen ninety nine, I, I had a, a website that was called folkmagic.co.uk. Um, which ended up being kind of electronically stolen from me, um, so I changed it to apertrebios.co.uk. But um, but yeah, I, I did a massive survey of um, museums and archaeological units for, for the beginning of that PhD, and I, I um, wrote to over 600 different establishments <clears throat> and asked them all if they had any of the types of finds that I was interested in, which was obviously concealed shoes, dry caps, horse gold, witch bottles. Mark, you know, have they got any mentions of marks and things like that, written charms? And I had a really, really healthy response, um, which really is the foundation for all of my research, really. So I had a really, really thorough, good response. And, and lots of people also put me in touch with other experts and said, you know, you should talk to this person, they've been collecting this kind of evidence in this area. And so I, I developed this sort of network of correspondence at the same time. Um, and also, I got to know all of Ralph Merrifield's colleagues as well. So. Um, because he'd passed away sadly by the time I began my PhD. So um, so all of his friends were really keen and really happy that I was carrying on the work. So, so we had a lot of um, conversations, really, really positive conversations. And, uh, and yeah, it all started from there really. And, and now that was 20 years ago. And I, I received um, reports of finds, you know, sometimes on a daily basis. I mean, it's usually kind of one or two a week, but you, you get kind of flurries when there's media attention. Oh, I'm sure. 
And how many do you think you have in total now in, in your collection? Do you have any idea, even? Uh, well, I certainly don't write about all of them in the book. I've sort of tried to just filter out some of the better examples you know, for each region. But, um, but it's got to be in the region of 2,000. So it's an extensive collection, and let, let's, let's try and break it down a little bit, if we can, um, to the kinds of things that you do explore in the book, because the book goes into into some quite um, great detail into some of these areas. Um, uh, the first couple of areas we've certainly looked at before on the podcast, um, and that's witch bottles and concealed shoes, which you've already mentioned um, concealed shoes we covered way back in the dawn of time on here in about episode three, and witch bottles uh, we we talked about through your your last um, fantastic one day conference on this subject with uh, Peter Hewitt from the Witchcraft Museum in Boscastle um, spoke on that subject at, at your conference and and then obviously on here. Um, so give us a broad overview just to for those people who who haven't benefited from listening to those yet um which bottles for example um how far back do they go because we're looking at different types of bottle here aren't we bellamine bottles glass bottles um do you know where this practice developed from uh yeah it's, it's i mean the first thing i suppose to say is is that there isn't um, uh, us, us experts who write about this. We don't always agree on, on our interpretation of these things. But, um, but certainly for me, witch bottles, I would say, start in the middle of the 17th century. Um, it's really sort of the sort of last third of the 17th century, sort of 1660s, that kind of time. That's where we seem to see the earliest Bellamine witch bottles. Now, that's not to say that people didn't use bottles in magical practices prior to that. But... Um, but the sort that we tend to refer to as witch bottles includes the bent nails, the hair, the urine, the pins, the thorns, um, and often inverted in the vicinity of a heart. That's when they begin. And they carry on like that with bellamines uh, being the choice of bottles, the stoneware, um, right up until maybe the first 20 years of the 18th century. And, and then you start to see more sort of earthenware and glass. And it's basically due to the the changes in trade, really. And um, glass became more popular and more commonplace. And so that's why it changed, really. But, uh, but yeah, that's about the sort of time limit with witch bottles. And there have been a few cases, haven't there, where, where people have managed to, um, un under decent scientific conditions, um, open or otherwise analyse some of these artefacts. What have we learned from that process? That's actually all happened with my colleague, Dr. Alan Massey. Um, there, there have been a few attempts prior to that, but none of them were really um, done to anywhere near the same sort of scientific degree. Um, usually it was archaeologists um, with some knowledge of chemistry and stuff, sort of just trying to find out what they can themselves. And they did a, they did a reasonable job. But if you spoke to Dr. Alan Massey, he would probably say that they didn't do a very good job of, of the analysis um, when you look at the earlier ones. So, so what he was able to do, because he's a retired research fellow at Loughborough University, he's able to take the bottles into the lab there and use mass spectroscopy and um, other techniques to determine the nature of the ingredients inside the bottle. And um, some of the, I mean, he, firstly, it's just impress, very impressive to see the contents laid out. 
Um, and he can obviously get an electron microscope on, on the object and look, look for really minute details. So he's able to find headlights, for example, inside the hair. He's able to see how the pins are made um, and be able to date the method of their construction, things like that. Um, he also can uh, sort of show the evolution of the chemical compounds inside the bottle and show how they could have decayed into that state from originally being urine, that kind of thing. So we've kind of got a much more detail. I mean, he really needs to um, publish his own work on his own, um, to be honest with you, um, on, a, on a chemistry basis, because there's an awful lot of the chemistry that he's done that I'm, I'm really not sufficiently scientifically minded to, to understand or present to the wider world. So I kind of try to synthesize or sort of summarize what he's found into uh, into my work, but um, uh, he, he really should be presenting his own work. He's got some incredible photos of some of the details. Um, what, one of the photos that I found most amazing that he showed me was um, some tiny crystals growing inside the leg socket of a headlight that he discovered inside um, a witch bottle. So, so yeah, I mean, this, what, it, what it's done really is it's confirmed the presence of urine, um, which it was written about, but obviously this is the scientific evidence for it. Um, obviously, we've been able to look at the hair and uh, look at the, the things that are living in the hair and notice also that there are different types of hair. It's not all hair from the head. Sometimes some of it is body hair. Um, also seeing that sometimes it includes things like the legs of insects, um, bits of barbed grass, you know, anything sharp, anything kind of unpleasant, anything that was an irritant. Uh, those things can have gone in there as well as the ingredients that were written about. <clears throat> and and is is the makeup, the chemical makeup of some of this important? For example, um, there are cases, aren't there, where we know that the pins are made out of iron, and that would be an important aspect of of what people were putting in the bottle. Yeah, I mean, most most pins and nails were made of iron. I mean, there are, there are a couple of examples uh, which we've got, which have brass and one or two that have actually solid silver pins as well. But, um, but mainly, mainly it is iron, and obviously iron, there's a huge amount of folklore about its ability to protect you from witchcraft, and indeed the fairy. And, um, and there is a little section about the use of iron in, in my book. <clears throat> yeah, it's very important, isn't it, With, as you say, within the folklore of, of all of these, these areas, um, it's a, very much a protective metal. Um, so when we move on from witch bottles, one of the other main uh, objects that you've already mentioned is obviously concealed shoes. Now, why did people do that? Why shoes? Uh, well, it seems to be, I mean, Ralph Merrifield, I think, um, hit on the, the, the answer, but he didn't go into it in a huge amount of detail in his book, which is that <clears throat> England had an unofficial saint called John Shaw, um, who was rector of North Marston in Buckinghamshire. Um, I can't remember his exact date of being born and died, but he might have died in 1309. And, um, and anyway, one of his... Uh, he was never canonised officially, but he was he was an unofficial saint in this country. And he was reputed to have cast the devil into a boot. Okay? And, uh, and all the iconography associated with him shows um, a devil trapped in a boot, or him sort of casting a devil into a boot. Um, now, that sounds a bit weird, <laughs> it is a bit weird, um, and some people, some sort of um, theologians and historians of the church think that actually he was, uh, he was famous for curing gout and things like that, and actually this thing about casting the devil into a boot 
was kind of a misinterpretation of the image. So the idea is that um, he's casting the devil out of your foot, he's getting the gout out of your foot, and he's sort of, uh, sort of blessing your, your footwear, if you like, to do that. Um, and we've subsequently thought he's casting the devil into a boot. Um, but the interesting thing about him is that uh, pilgrimages to his shrine were the second most popular in, in England for a period of about 250 years. So the only one more popular was Thomas the Beckett. And so, um, <clears throat> so we're talking about a huge amount of money being donated at his shrine in North Martin in Buckinghamshire, and also um, a huge amount of pilgrim badges and artwork in churches throughout the country, all depicting a devil being trapped in a boot. Um, and so it became a commonplace idea that you could trap a devil in a boot, uh, basically purely through the distribution of images related to John Sean because of his popularity. Um, and in fact, he was so popular that his shrine was actually moved to Windsor to Windsor for a, for a time because the, the royals wanted to benefit from the, uh, the revenue. And, and as his uh, popularity dwindled, they moved his remains back to North Marston again. Um, so, so, yeah, essentially that seems to be uh, where the tradition started in this country. And it certainly, um, our, our footwear seems to date from the sort of latter half of the 14th century onwards in terms of concealed shoes. Um, and obviously, the further back in time you go, the less you find, because there are less buildings surviving from that period, and less chances of finding any small survival in those buildings. Um, but yeah, it seems to have started around about then. Now, in every country, there, there are beliefs about footwear, and lots of beliefs about any kind of extremity of your body, or any body part, in fact. But um, and sometimes they overlap with uh, the idea of concealed shoes. So. So when, so when you find shoes concealed in a building, it's not definite that they're always there to, to repel or trap evil in the, in the manner of John Sean. Um, sometimes I think that they're there as um, a sort of treasured memento of uh, the infant death. So sometimes, you know, a child might have died in the house and you're keeping a, a shoe as a token, if you like. Um, and so it sort of depends where in the house you find um, a piece of footwear, as well as um, how many and and whether they're well-worn or whether they're treasured, that kind of thing. But, um, but most often when you find shoes in a building, it is um, to act kind of as a, I think it's a mixture of two things. You've, you've got this idea that the shoe can trap the evil, but you've also got the fact that it's a well-worn object that was close to someone and, you know, uh, like the Cinderella story, kind of unique to the shape of your foot, and obviously much more expensive in the past, so you wouldn't dispose of it so easily and you'd repair and repair, so it really would only fit you so by the time you do have to get rid of it, it's kind of a precious object that's perfect for sort of sympathetic magic. And if you put it in uh, part of the perimeter of your house, or if you put it down by the hearth, essentially you're, you're using it to lure any evil to attack it instead of you, because it's sort of resonating with you, but it isn't you. Um, and, and of course, if there's also this belief that you can trap evil in a, in a big piece of footwear, then you've got a double whammy. And I think that's what's happening with, with these shoes. Do you think there's some kind of connection with with the idea of um, when when people talking about laying ghosts of of like trapping a spirit in a in a box which is then buried? Um, is there a kind of parallel there? Uh, possibly, yeah, possibly. I think I think see, there's there is in in my view there's there's um, two objects in particular that people used to to trap spirits, and that's the the witch bottle. Because I think that the boiling of a witch bottle, that, that practice is a separate practice to the burying of a witch bottle, in my opinion. There's two different uh, spells going on, and we've 
others just looking back at the, the text and the evidence. But um, so there's that, and then there's the, the shoes, and they both seem to have served as traps in some way uh, to sort of capture energy. And one of the things I, I tend to think about with, with magical house protection is that people were aware that um, the sort of harm they were protecting themselves from was rarely actually an entire live spirit flying around inside your house. It was more often some kind of energy that was raised up and cast at you, a la, you know, aka a spell, um, and you had to do something to manipulate, decoy or trap that energy. Um, and it was, I think people were thinking more along those lines than actually the, the idea that a witch might literally come in through their chimney. And just to clarify as well, the difference between uh, burying and boiling uh, a witch bottle, can you just explain uh, what the purpose of boiling it is compared to concealing it within the home? Yeah, well, there's a bunch of reasons why it's fairly clear that they're separate practices. But the, the, the boiling was um, written about in sort of alchemical texts and pamphlets that you could uh, get hold of at the time, um, which are all referenced in my book. But, um, but the idea was that um, uh, the, the devil would not suffer, would not allow the witch to, to operate on an evil plane, if you like, without some element of her being tied into her victims, right? So the idea is you could, if you were a victim of a witch, you could exploit the fact that some of the witch was inside you by urinating into a vessel, um, in this case, uh, a bellamine most often, but it, it definitely happens in any kind of uh, vessel, really. And... Um, the idea was you'd put some pins as well as your urine in, into the, the bottle and you'd bung it very tightly and you'd heat it on a fire and the idea was that the heat would cause excruciating pain to the, the bladder of the witch. The, the idea was that she or he could not pass water and that it would cause incredible pain and they'd come and beg you to stop doing it. Um, in return for which obviously you, you could bargain for them removing whatever spell they'd put on you. And um, most of these texts um, give illustrative examples of how... Um, a local wizard or witch would come begging you to stop boiling the bottle. And um, others talk about how um, this practice might even kill a witch or a wizard. Um, and then there are other later examples where, <clears throat> where it's obvious that this bottle would basically, its cork would pop out and all these contents would spew all over your uh, your kitchen or wherever it was <laughs> you were doing this, which would be pretty disgusting. And there was a, there was a later example of someone using a metal bottle this is a cunning person using a metal bottle of some kind, which exploded in the shrapnel killed their client. Um, <clears throat> so, so, yeah, I mean, that's, it's a different practice to the, the buried ones, because all of the ones talking about the boiling don't mention the inclusion of hair, um, which is definitely always, almost always present in the buried bottles. Um, and also, you know, the, the boiled ones mainly just talk about urine and pins. Um, but one of them does mention, I think it's one of the American ones, talks about anything that anything with a show of torture about it could be included. But they still don't mention a hair. And quite often the buried ones will have nail pairings as well as hair inside them. And I think that that is there to lure the, um, the evil, if you like, into the bottle so that it's more anthropomorphic. Because obviously these bellamine bottles are anthropomorphic. They look like little humans. And if there's an element of you inside it, your urine, your hair, your fingernails, you're clearly trying to fool it into attacking that instead of attacking you. And I think that's why they were positioned near to the heart. Because um, <clears throat> this idea of the boiling was meant to be, the, 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 the metaphysical concept behind it means that it shouldn't really matter where the bottle was placed. 
because you're exploiting this magical relationship between the witch and his or her victim. Um, and yet there's clearly a pattern of burying these bodies near the heart, uh, over half of them, in the, well, around half of them are near the heart, and the remainder tend to be at thresholds and under the floor. Um, <clears throat> whereas, obviously, if it was if it was as simple as this spoiling process, you could do it anywhere, and you wouldn't need to bury the bottle afterwards. Yeah, this uh, location idea is important, isn't it? Uh, in a in a similar way to other aspects of folklore, I guess it's to it's to do with the boundaries. Uh, so in this case, the boundaries of the property or the threshold, as you say, is a key place because it prevents entry. In this case, yeah, I mean it's it's very much in the same way as as if you were setting up uh, an alarm system in your house. You'd go through all of the doors and windows and anywhere that's a bit vulnerable, you'd try and protect it. But also, um, the main thing with the heart is that it's always open to the sky. You know, every other, all of the other ways in and out of your house, you, you can bolt shut or, or seal in some way. <laughs> yes, but of course, the hearth having an open chimney in in those times meant that there was always a way in there. Yeah. So, so the chimney breast is a, is a, another location where we find lots of these objects, isn't it? Yeah, loads. Now, one of the other. Um, objects for want of a better term that, that are often unearthed are the remains of animals so can you explain a little bit about both which types of animal are common to find i think most people would probably think of mummified cats in in this case but i know there are other examples um and and how this was being used maybe the difference between the idea of a foundation sacrifice or, or some other form of protection okay well Foundation sacrifices um, are quite different, really, to, to some of the things that we find. I mean, when I'm talking about dried cats and horse skulls, they, they're used in a slightly different way to foundation sacrifices. <clears throat> foundation sacrifices literally are in the foundations, and so they're normally underneath the footings of a building, and you would never normally see them. Um, <clears throat> so, for example, in some of the Eastern European countries, and presumably even further east, um, in the other countries around the world, um, foundation sacrifices are still done. Um, a friend of mine who, who was actually at one of the conferences, um, she she has some uh, relatives in Albania, and she was shown a video which she did show to me, which was taken sort of remotely using a kind of telephoto lens, and it was some builders where there was a con all the concrete footings had been put into a building, all the, the, the steel work was there as well for the concrete to be poured over. And uh, they were all gathered around, and they had a live goat, and they just cut its throat there and then. And um, it died, all its blood spilled into the foundations, and then they carried on just pouring concrete in over the top afterwards. And so that's, that's what a foundation sacrifice is. That's where you're literally killing an animal as you're, as you're putting the foundations in. Now, some of the things like cats, um, the, we find these dried cats deliberately sealed into cavities in buildings. Um, sometimes they show evidence of having been fixed to um, the beam or, or tied, if you like, to, to a joist. There's quite a few examples of that. Uh, there was, I think it was in Dalton in Yorkshire, a cat was found tied to a floor joist. Um, and then in things like in, a, in the church in Penrith, in, up in Cumbria, a cat was found sandwiched between um, plaster and roof tiles. Um, and, you know, I've, I've come across an example from Eckington Murray to live where a cat was found sandwiched between layers of thatch and it really could not have crawled in there on its own. 
Um, and so these, these are them not in the foundation, these are them in other ways, and they could sometimes be inserted into the building later on, at times when the building's being modified or altered. So, um, so again, we have a different kind of practice. Um, <clears throat> and my confusion in, in the book regarding the cats in particular is that essentially you're trying to tie the spirit of the cat to the to the building to act as um, even though what you're doing is essentially an evil thing to the cat, you're hoping that the cat will act in a benevolent way because cats, pet cats generally do act in a benevolent way and they catch vermin for you. Um, they're also semi-nocturnal, they're awake when you're asleep, they can help fend things off while you're sleeping. Um, that's also seen as a good trait. And so the idea is that the cat, uh, that you're trapping its spirit in the, in the house so that it acts as a little guardian spirit to your house. Um, remember people in this country particularly, they used to believe in the witch's familiar as being one of the main methods of transmission of spells. And, um, and so a cat would be perfectly good at um, helping to protect your house from something like the witch's familiar. And it would be another layer of security for you. And then we do find the occasional dog, uh, but this is usually a bit later on. Uh, it's like these things change a bit as we get towards the modern era. And people think to sort of half remember things instead of fully remembering things. Um, but yeah, horse skulls, um, that's another thing which is, seems to have much more ancient pedigree, I guess. Um, and this one seems to have a sort of mixture of foundation of sacrifice and um, a similar sort of belief with the cat. Um, <clears throat> because, again, the horses um, are seen as kind of friendly creatures to us. You know, they're sort of, they're working animals, of course, but, but also people would become affectionate towards them and have a kind of pet-type relationship with them. Um, and also, they're, um, <clears throat> I'm, I'm told they can sleep with their eyes open, so they're, they're vigilant during the night when we're not. They're also incredibly sensitive. They raise the alarm very easily if they're disturbed by something. Um, there's a kind of alertness to them. But I think also, one of the things with horse dolls is that, um, I'm sure, well, I know for a fact that, you're, that you, Mark, have seen horse dolls with your work with Spokedown. Absolutely. But, um, but they do actually have a really fearsome aspect. They're, they're quite scary, quite intimidating to look at when you look at a horse skull. Um, they're quite different. They look like a different creature to the actual horse, don't they? They're kind of like slightly alien looking. Yeah, they really um, do. So, is there any connection then? You mentioned the folk dance aspect. Uh, is there any kind of connection within the folklore between the practice of using horse skulls as a protective measure here and the pra practice of using horse skulls uh, as an animal totem in something like the Mary Fluid horse, for example? Uh, well, I, I think there is, yeah. I, I think that the, um, it was the, the fearsome aspect of the horse skull was, I think, used to ward off other spirits. I think it was, um, like, for example, there, there are some traditions in, in the craft world where uh, people, I've been told from certain people, that um, it was traditional to have a rug in front of your heart that often would have a red diamond on it. And the idea was that if the devil was coming creeping down your chimney, it would peek down through the, through the fireplace and see the eye of another devil already in your house and back away because he knew that that house was already taken. <clears throat> and I think that in a way, Horse skulls um, uh, have this kind of gargoyle function, you know, where they're kind of scaring away other spirits that might want to come in. And, um, <clears throat> and also scaring away, potentially, um, a witch or a lesser demon that might be trying to enter your house to cause you harm. Um, so I think there's a mixture of that kind of element, and also just the fact that horses have this friendly, vigilant kind of aspect. And they're very strong and powerful animals as well. 
Um, so if you imagine you have a spirit animal of a horse helping protect your house, in addition to maybe some cats, in addition to your witch bottle and your shoes and everything else you've got in your house, you've got quite a formidable array of devices. Yes, it really is like an arsenal of protection, isn't it? And, and often these objects are being backed up with um, the use of written charms alongside them to act as a further level of protection. Is that a case of kind of almost fighting fire with fire when you when you look at the tradition of, of witches wanting to use spells in a negative way, for example? Yeah, I mean... All, all of these people are, are, are using the supernatural um, or trying to understand the supernatural and find ways of counteracting it, sometimes also using the same sort of techniques in reverse. Um, and, of course, some of these uh, practices are actually led by the local cunning person, and some of them are, are just through general folk knowledge. So things like shoes, you wouldn't need to be told how to do that. You would just probably add them into your building if you saw the opportunity to do so. Um Cats, you could probably deal with that yourself. And in fact, sometimes builders, I think, were doing that when they were making renovations to your building, maybe also adding in a bit of insurance policy or a bit of extra protection as an additional service that they're providing for you. Um, but certain things like witch bottles, you might be advised on how to put one together by a cunning person. Um, and a written charm definitely would be commissioned. Uh, you know, you would, you would ask a cunning person to produce one. Um, but actually, you weren't asking them to produce a charm. You were asking them to protect your building. And what the end result of that would be would be the concealment of a written charm. But it would often include a series of rituals lasting maybe weeks prior, you know, sort of a regular appointment each week, going down all, all the different aspects of your property, saying the same connected rituals, and kind of effectively blessing all the corners of your territory, culminating in a final ritual that included the deposition of the written charm. So yeah, so it is. That is also magic. And have you have you noticed um, particular patterns or particular similarities uh, when you look at the charms? I mean, I I know uh, not so many charms survive compared to to other physical objects, but are there patterns in what we do find of using particular symbols for particular things, for example? Uh, yep. Yeah. Um, what we we, the first thing to notice about these written charms is that normally um, they're taking, if you like, supernatural power or authority from any source they can. So it's kind of telling us a lot about the, the coming folk, really, and about where their powers were derived from. And essentially they were derived from any source they could get their hands on, which could be biblical, it could be Arabic magic, it could be sort of something like the Key of Solomon ritual magic, it could be astrological symbols. It could be just old charms that they might have learned from their neighbours and their ancestors. But, um, but yeah, so, so when you read these charms, quite often they begin with invocations to God and Jesus, asking them to protect the person who is the, uh, the focus of the charm. But then in the bottom left-hand corner, you might find an abracadabra word triangle. And in the bottom right-hand corner, you might find a, a sort of seal from the seal of, from the key of Solomon. And in the middle, at the bottom, you might find lots of astrological and planetary symbols. Um, and then you might find sort of words, sort of garbled versions of Latin. You might find the names of archangels, um, things like that. And then all of this would be folded up tightly 
and it would look like a, a beautiful work of art, to be honest with you. They're, they're quite nicely produced. And then once it's been created and put into a small bottle or a small or wrapped up in a folded piece of lead, it can be concealed somewhere on the property. So you've actually got a really powerful, potent little artifact. And, um, and it's all bound up with the name of the person who's commissioned it. And so it really would be seen as quite an important ritual act. Um, and all of the charms have kind of similar components. But depending on which region you're in, you might find more or less of the occult symbols. You might find more or less of the biblical elements. Um, but they're all essentially mixing their sources of power and offering to, and trying to draw these and focus these powers on protecting the person from the harm. Um, and their animals, their livestock, their property, everything, their children. Um, so they're powerful. They probably, they probably were quite expensive to commission. They're probably a good source of revenue for the coming people. Yes, absolutely, um, and and they are one of the stronger forms of protection, as you say. Now, these symbols, as well, of course, occur in other ways, don't they? As well, can you explain a little bit about the use of symbology uh, when people are actually physically marking the building itself? Yep, this is a a more extensive chapter in my book because there's so many different ways that people used to do this. Um, I suppose the most ancient one, the first one to address. Uh, which I think has been really uh, not written about very well so far, until, until my book, of course. Of course. <laughs> you know, I think that I managed to sort of find other people who've done some, some sort of better research than I have and brought it into my book, thankfully. Um, but yeah, basically, the daisy wheel, or the compass strong circle, or the hex foil, or the, uh, the rosette, or some, some people in, in German, the sunflower, you know, things like this six-petals compass-drawn pattern um, is actually a really, really ancient symbol, which has its roots as a solar symbol. Um, and it's essentially a, a beautiful way of representing the, the radiance of the sun, essentially. And, um, <clears throat> and for some reason in this country, we forgot that's what it means. But all the other countries that I've done research in um, still all quite firmly believe that it is an ancient solar symbol. And then... There are people like my Finnish friend, Marco Manninen, who's done uh, extensive travels all over Europe and into sort of the Middle East looking for this symbol and has found it on objects going back as far as 1600 BC. But, there are, but it even appears um, there's a sort of protean version of it on one of the uh, stones that lock through megalithic center in Central Ireland, uh, which dates to about 3000 BC. So, so this idea of the sun being represented as a kind of sort of circle petal kind of form um, is genuinely ancient. And, um, and actually for a long time it was included in sort of medieval tracery and medieval sort of chess designs in Britain. Um, and so it was a kind of overtly used as a pattern in this country for quite a while. Um, and in, indeed it does occur on some fonts and some tympanums um, occasionally as sort of decoration on some corbels, I'm just thinking of an example of Beckford in Worcestershire that has it. Um, but yeah, um, but then it seems to have been sort of lost in some way, and people start using it as a scratched device, as a kind of graffito, and you find it sort of often behind doors in churches, um, you find it sometimes in the vicinity of the font, but you can find it pretty much anywhere, inside or outside the building, whether it's the military or, or domestic. Uh, it seems to be used to um, as a symbol that, that sheds light 
Um, so, so the idea is if you have a vulnerable area, um, people have this idea that darkness could lurk in places, you know, posing potential harm. And obviously, if you put a symbol that's radiating the light of the sun there, then darkness can't lurk there anymore. And, um, and so that seems to be how deployed, in my opinion. Um, so that's one of the symbols, the, the daisy wheel, or the hex foil. I call it a daisy wheel in my book. It's just the way I've come to enjoy calling it. But it does have a variety of names depending on which country and which researcher you're talking to. Um, then another bunch of symbols are what we refer to as Marian marks because they're related to the Virgin Mary. And essentially they're um, M's and V's, which can be inverted, well, MVs and W's. W's are obviously inverted M's and vice versa. Um, now, the complicating factor here is that people used to write W's as a pair of overlapping V's. So, um, so some people sort of poo-poo the idea that these are anything to do with the Virgin Mary and suggest that actually they're, it's a W initial. But, but the, the preponderance of them, there's a really huge amount of them, and, and often you find them on their own, um, devoid of any other name references. Um, and it seems that what we have is a VV, which Timothy Easton um, had some Catholic friends who suggested to him that they could mean Virgin of Virgins, um, which is a nice idea for the VV. Um, however, I think Matt Champion, he also does research in this area, he thinks that there's no evidence that that was a commonplace term in this country, um, which may be true, but, but if that is the case, um, it certainly is still the case that um, two Vs overlapping looks like a pair of, like a, a double Virgin, if you like, you know, Virgin and Virgin again. Um, and then flip it over the other way, and it's an M for Maria. And of course, this is the, the Catholic monogram for the Virgin Mary anyway. The idea of these joined together and flipped over. Um, it's kind of a sort of compound of the two letters, the Virgin and the Mary. And so that's, that's a really important symbol that we see quite often scratched on the surfaces. Um, and the interesting thing about the, the M, the overlapping of these, if you like, is that if a lot of people, if you look at the palm of your hand, you can see it right there. Exactly the same, and um, and for example, in in the Prince Arthur's Chantry in the cathedral, there are some of these M marks um, on one of the, uh, the sort of sills in there, and they are identical to the marks on your hand in as much in exactly the same way as the tails of the M taper away and the way they overlap. It's literally like someone has looked at their palm and drawn that onto the side of the, the wall there. So um, so that symbol seems to be contained almost as a source of power, Marian power on your hand, on your palm, as well as being one that you could etch onto a surface. So the Marian marks are there. We also have things that you, we might loosely call Christograms, which is um, the capitalized I with a blue cross through it, which is an old symbol for Jesu or Jesus. Um, so that happens quite a bit. Quite often you'll find a Jesus and Virgin Mary symbol together. And there's a double power, like bringing the power of those deities, if you like, to protect um, a particular spot from evil. The Virgin Mary is the most popular one, though. Um, I think partly because she's kind of underrepresented in the iconography and the symbols within her church compared to Jesus. Um, so it's kind of nice to represent her. But also, I think she's seen as a protective, nurturing force, whereas Jesus and the other deities within the Christian pantheon um, could be quite forbidding and formidable and quite strict. Um, so that's another reason for that. Um, and then the other type of marks that we find an awful lot is, um, oh, we also get mesh marks, which are kind of grids that are often um, etched onto surfaces. And um, 
And again, my theory with this, I mean, a lot of these other marks, is that where you're damaging a surface, you're kind of creating a ghostly line, uh, a line of light, if you like, where, where you've etched away the stone. And I think that people were creating these kind of symbolic nets or meshes that were symbolically protecting their area from harm as well, or capturing evil forces as they're trying to pass through to get to harm other people. And then um, the other category, I suppose, is burn marks. Um, for some reason, people call these paper burn marks all the time. They're, they're not always made with papers. They could be made with candles. Um, I don't like calling them paper burn marks. I see the paper part as being a little bit pointless. But, um, but yeah, I just call them burn marks. Um, <clears throat> and Experimental Archaeology by John Dean and Nick Hill, I think it was in the 2014 Immaculate Architecture Journal, um, they demonstrated that to make one of these burn marks, which are essentially a, a blackened candle flame type uh, burn mark on a, on a, usually on a timber surface floor. Um, it actually takes sort of five minutes or so to get a decent shaped mark, and then you have to scrape away the sticky uh, surface of the burn, and then burn even deeper to create these really deep burn marks that we find quite often on timber buildings. Um, and some, some places have so many of these marks, um, it's really, it shows a huge amount of effort and time has been invested in creating these burn marks. And obviously, um, you get people saying, oh no, they're just accidental marks where a light has burned against the timber. But obviously, if that was the case, there'd be evidence of a fixing hole where the paper or candle or whatever flame was being used was attached to the beam, and we don't find those. Um, if you did find one, obviously, that would be a reason for that particular burn mark. But in all the burn marks I've looked at, I haven't found one. And, um, and again, my theory here is that where you're burning away the surface of the wood, you're creating essentially a candle flame in the ethereal realm. So you're creating like a ghost candle. In the same way as the daisy wheel is providing the sort of illumination of the sun, so the darkness can't lurk there. Here we're creating the illumination of a candle on the other side, so the darkness can't lurk in the sort of more metaphysical plane, waiting to pounce on you in the night when you're asleep. And so, one of the best examples I've come across so far, which I spoke about at the Seven Charmers 2 conference, was at Hankayak Fowl Manor in South Wales, where there's a bracing beam in a dormer room, which has over a hundred of these burn marks just on this one beam. And this dormer room is right above the entrance to the building, which also has a dried cat, which also has other things associated with it. So, so yeah, so that's, that's some of the range of marks. And of course, these marks are often, particularly thinking about the burn marks, and they're often not found for a very long time. They're in particularly inaccessible areas. So, so it's obviously the case that they've been put there deliberately because you just wouldn't normally attach a candle, for example, in the place in which we find them. Yeah, that's right. That's right. I mean, uh, you know, once you start um, going through these arguments in your head, it becomes really obvious when you see them that they've been put there deliberately. And, um, and occasionally you even find them upside down, showing that they've been applied by a carpenter before the building has even been erected. So, so the people who are are creating the property in the first place are acting a level of uh, are putting a level of protection into it, uh, and then the residents of the property are putting another level of protection into it. Um, exactly. And there's there's quite a collection there that you've been through of, of quite commonly found objects. Um, are there other less common objects that are that are found that probably have similar meaning to the ones that you've discussed? 
Well, one of the beauties of folk magic is that you can imbue almost any object with any, with the with meaning if you and, and use it in the right way. Um, but but some of the things that we come across quite often as well are, for example, knife blades, um, which will often be broken minus their handles, that sort of thing. Sometimes broken into placed underneath window sills or above door lintels or chimney lintels. So sometimes just inserted into cracks in a building or gaps in between stonework. And um, again, um, what we've got here is the use of iron as a protective um, object. But also um, this idea that if you break an object, um, which I should have said earlier when we were talking about witch bottles, the buried ones, the pins um, are all bent uh, deliberately. And we believe this is to sort of kill the pins. So you release a kind of ghost pin. Um, the idea is that when the, the energy plunges into the bottle, it gets impaled on these ghostly pins within. Um, and again, this, that isn't specified as one of the things that you must do to the pins in the boiling of the rich bottles, which is, again, another difference, including the hair, you know, another reason why like, the actual practices are very different. But, but yeah, we're back to knife blades again. Um, you know, you have a knife, you break it, you essentially have a ghostly blade, a ghost blade that's sitting there underneath your window protecting it from any harm that might be coming in that way. Um, and also, of course, it's made of iron, which also has the same properties against, uh, against witches and uh, the fairy. And, you know, the old, the old uh, idea of the, uh, the horseshoe, which crop up quite a bit, but sometimes it's buried. Um, sometimes there's one good example I came across, I can't remember the exact place, unfortunately, it's off the top of my head, but it's inside a chimney breast, um, sort of nailed up inside the chimney breast. But not where anybody can see it. Um, and we'd also get things like cast iron firebacks, sometimes with symbols on as well, which again, you know, it's right at the base of your chimney, a solid basic lump of iron to protect against witchcraft, but also to have a practical purpose with uh, fire prevention, fire protection and reflecting heat back into the building. Um, yeah, there's, there's, there's all sorts of things. We also get things like, um, there seems to be a practice of hazel rods being included in, in roofs, for example. I'm not entirely sure why, but we get hazel rods sometimes being inserted non-structurally into roofs, um, sometimes hung underneath floors as well. <clears throat> what else do we find? Yeah, as you say, it's it's a really wide um, collection of objects, and, and and anything can be imbued with the meaning that you want to give it. Now, of course, in the modern day, we still use some of these symbols. Uh, the horseshoe, I guess, springs to mind as being now what we might term a traditional good luck symbol so people will still hang a horseshoe outside their house or put a horseshoe on the mantelpiece for example um but are the practices that you've been talking about during the course of this discussion still undertaken in modern times at all or do we just find those sorts of examples of being oh well here's a traditional symbol that i'm going to put in my house well <clears throat> I visited, uh, well, you, you, you saw when you came to Hidden Charms to um, one of our speakers was Adina Hulabash from Romania. And she has told me an awful lot about the use of the daisy wheel, for example, in Romania. And that it's still a, a, regarded as a current important protective symbol in churches as well as in just home crafts and traditional building practices. And so there are, there are carpenters out there 
working on building who are highly skilled at creating um, the daisy wheel and other designs, in, often including horses actually, in built, traditional buildings in Romania. And then in this country, you know, I've got examples where modern trainers have been found, um, which have clearly been deposited by builders during building work. One of them, I think, was found in one of the London banks in the roof. And there's another case of a 1920s terrace house in London where a stiletto was found nailed to an upright uh, wall stud when they were doing some modifications to a building, along with other objects in that house. And so you can see that the, the shoes thing is still fairly modern. Um, and then we still get examples where pet cats go missing. Um, the, one of the more recent examples was from turn of the from 19th into the 20th century, from Dorset, I believe, where a cat went missing. Um, the owners were very concerned. There was some building work going on. We tracked down the cat, the noise of the cat, to a, an area and it was clear that the cat had been sealed into this area and the, the owners believed that there was no way that the cat would have been missed. So it had been deliberately interred, but they managed to rescue it. Um, and again, you know, as I said earlier, as you go off into Albania, people are still very strongly believing in this practice of foundation sacrifice. And a lot of East European workers are involved in building sites in this country, so I wouldn't be surprised if there are foundation sacrifices going on in this country still, and certainly with horse skulls. Um, one of the most sort of gripping tales in Ralph Merrifield's book is an example from the sort of end of the 19th century, turn of the 20th again, where a nonconformist chapel was being built in Norfolk, and um, one of the younger boys was sent off to the knackered yard to get a horse skull, and they placed it on a stake just when they were starting commencing the foundations, poured some beer over it, and, um, and they, they refused to break ground until they'd done that. So, so that was a horse skull used in a foundation ritual there. Um, and we know that horse skulls are uh, included in it. And the most of these non-conformist chapels, especially in Wales, you know. but, um, but yeah, then they can also be used in other ways as well, just under floorboards. So, so yeah, this, this practice, these practices um, are certainly happening. <clears throat> Some of them are happening now still. <clears throat> Some of them sort of more recently deceased, I suppose, as practices but there are almost certainly still vestigial practices going on. <clears throat> if people live in an older property uh, and come across one of these objects during the course of, of renovation, or indeed if people live in a newer property and come across objects of the kind of nature of those we've been discussing, what do they tend to do with them and what what more importantly what is your advice as to what people should do if they come across a concealed object like this in their own house well if the owners are aware of the thing that's been found in their house normally they behave um in a very concerned manner um sometimes builders uh i say sometimes because not all builders are like this but some sometimes builders will just get rid of the things they find because it's in the way and they don't want anything to hold up their job. But other times builders will um, tell the owners or they'll take the finders themselves to museums and archaeological units. Some of them even report them to me. <clears throat> but, um, but when owners find them, they normally become uh, supernaturally alert, shall we say. It's like, it's like uh, the supernatural radar pricks up. Um, often in people who have 
not previously had a supernatural bone in their body, as it were. Um, sometimes they're becoming... It's like this thing has been found within their own little safe zone. And it is all of a supernatural kind of... It has a supernatural connection. And it kind of wakes up this sense in people. So I, I often get people getting in touch with me who are really, really scared. Um, not sure what to do, really worried about it. They're scared they might have disturbed the spirit of some kind or that something bad might happen if it leaves the house. Um, obviously, some owners really don't give a stuff. And they'll just quite happily give it to someone or donate it, and they're not bothered at all. But others really respond very, very uh, emotionally and um, with a lot of concern. And, and generally speaking, <clears throat> what I ask for is as many photos as I can of the object they've discovered, as much detail about the building as they can give me. If, if it's not too far away, I'll try and go and see it and investigate the site myself. But generally speaking, I recommend that whatever they find stays in the building and goes back where they found it. Um, because it's part of the house's history and it's part of the house's story. And, and personally, I think it should stay there. And, and also, we have so many of these objects in museums and archaeological units. Um, and only a very small proportion of them are on display. Uh, we really don't need lots more of them going into archaeological units and museums. So, <clears throat> while, while local historians and archaeologists will find it very interesting to learn about it, I don't think the object itself needs to leave the house. So, um, as long as it's recorded carefully enough, it should just be put back and sealed back in again. Um, but sometimes people like to have it on display, so they'll, they'll get a little window put in so that people can see this object inside its fine spot within the house. And I really love it when that's possible. But obviously you have to take conservation very seriously. I mean, one of the reasons these objects have survived so long is because they've been in a stable environment. And if you start messing with the materials around that object, sometimes you create humidity or too much dryness, and the object can't always survive. So, so generally speaking, if they put it back in, as you found it, and um, just record it as well as you can first. Okay, so I, I think that that is that is the the most sensible approach, isn't it? Is to record in as much detail as possible, as you say, photograph, film, put it into context, um, and and then preserve it back in its original environment the best way you can. Um, thank you, Brian, for running through all of those. That's really fascinating. If people are interested in learning more about this, then there is a wealth of detail that you haven't covered in your book, Magical House Protection. Uh, where should people go to seek that out? Well, they can visit my website, which is um, aperturepass.co.uk, which I'm, I'm hoping you'll spell for them on, on your blog page. I will certainly um, link to it on the, on the page. It's, yeah. it's not easy to spell. <laughs> um, um, and the other thing, of course, is... Um, on my website, you'll see um, I do quite a lot of lectures. They can come and meet me and have a chat or listen to all my lectures. Um, and then, of course, there is things like the Hidden Charms conferences, which are well worth attending because um, you'll hear from lots of other experts and there's a whole community of people interested in this subject. So it's good to kind of hang out with them and find out more that way as well. And on that note, uh, you've just released details of the third Hidden Charms conference, which is in April 2020. Can you just finish by telling us a little bit about what people can expect at that, uh, where it is, and how they can get tickets for it? Yeah, it's at St Mary's Creative Space, which used to be St Mary's Church, which is on St Mary's Hill in Chester. It's a beautiful building, and it has theatre-style seating inside it and a proper little stage area. It's going to be a fantastic venue for the event. It's on the 18th of April, 20. We have nine speakers through the day. Um, each of them will speak, they'll deliver a 20-minute lecture, 
and then, then we deliberately have quite a long period for questions afterwards. So there's 20 minutes of lecture and 10 minutes of questions. Um, we have really long coffee breaks. We have 45 minute long, two, two 45-minute long coffee breaks in the morning and the afternoon. Um, and there's lots of chances for networking and meeting everyone and talking about things. And then we also um, have a lunch break, obviously, where anyone can just go off into Chester and have a bit of lunch. And we usually sort of all get together in the evening at some pub, and sometimes we do things the day after too. It's a really nice weekend. Lots of um, nice energy in the room. Everybody's very friendly. And um, you don't have to be an expert to come, but you can be an expert and get a lot out of it too. Absolutely. And of course, Hidden Charms 2, um, we recorded all of the speakers for the episode of the podcast on which bottles came from that. And there are others that I have not yet released, but intend to do so uh, as we move forward towards Hidden Charms 3, which will give people more of an idea as, as to what to expect as well. And there were some fascinating speakers at the second one as well. So it'll be great for people to get along to that if they can. Uh, Brian, thank you so much for, for taking the time out to talk on this subject. It really is interesting. And I hope that anybody uh, who has listened to this episode and, and has um, stories of their own to tell, either send them in to myself on the podcast or send them to you, Brian, and we can perhaps find some more interesting tales from this. Yeah, that'd be brilliant. Yeah, thanks for the chat. Thank you very much. Thanks to Brian for such an in-depth discussion of this topic. Links to Brian's website where you can report finds or learn more about his work are on the guests page of the Folklore Podcast website, as well as more details about his fantastic book. On the subject of books, I've been receiving a large number of these from authors and publishers, either for future interviews or for review. Now I will be adding a new section to the podcast website soon for these book reviews with handy links to buy copies, as well as my thoughts on the titles themselves. If you are an author or publisher and want to submit anything for consideration or you want to know more, please email thefolklorepodcast at gmail.com and we can chat about it. And don't forget that the Big Record project is still up and running for you to submit your audio recordings of folklore memories. Now if you prefer to write, do email in with customs or traditions that you remember on any subject for the archives. Thanks for listening. See you next time. The Folklore Podcast is written and presented by me, Mark Norman. To find out more about my research and writing, visit www.facebook.com slash marknormanfolklore or on Twitter with the handle at Mr underscore Mark underscore Norman. Research assistance is provided by Tracy Norman. Visit her website at www.tracynormanswitch.com to follow her historical research and projects. The Folklore Podcast will always be free to listen to and tries to avoid annoying advertising or sponsorship messages, but it cannot sustain itself. We are grateful for the support of all of our patrons who, for as little as $1 a month, earn themselves great rewards whilst ensuring our future. For more details, please visit www.patreon.com slash thefolklorepodcast. If you cannot support us in this way, please share the episodes on your social media and leave positive reviews. This really helps the audience for the podcast to grow. Visit www.thefolklorepodcast.com 
for more episode and guest information, to buy from the web store, or to sign up for free newsletters or get in touch. The Folklore Podcast theme music was written and performed by Gurdy Bird. Thanks for listening. <laughs>